On June 8, 1991, 8,000 US troops marched in triumph through Washington, DC, having returned from the Persian Gulf where they had just ousted Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army from Kuwait in one of the most spectacular military operations in history. The 1991 Gulf War was a watershed in conducting a military campaign, seeing the first wide-scale use of so-called smart bombs that gave aircraft the ability to not only target a specific building, but even a specific window. It was also a masterclass in multinational cooperation, with a vast coalition of Western and Arab nations working together towards a common goal. But this era also gave birth to a terrifying mystery surrounding the fate of its many veterans. Of those 8,000 men marching that day, statistically, around 2,600 of them will have fallen extremely ill as a result of their time in the Persian Gulf, their lives marred by disease and pain. In today's episode, we will be examining these mysterious cases of illness suffered by veterans, investigate the possible causes for the terrible affliction, and chart the battle for authorities to accept that even those without wounds did not leave the war zone entirely unscathed. This is the mystery of Gulf War Syndrome. Welcome to Wars of the World. It was not long after the conclusion of the 1991 Gulf War that veterans returning home began to experience certain medical conditions at an alarmingly higher rate than those service personnel who were operational in other theatres, such as Europe and Asia, at the time of the conflict in the Middle East. At first, there was something of a reluctance to diagnose these service personnel with conditions related to the combat deployment, with doctors either attributing their afflictions to normal illnesses they would have experienced anyway, or that they were some physical manifestation of post-traumatic stress disorder. Given that in the early 1990s, there was still a lot of stigma surrounding military personnel regarding PTSD, which used to be known as shell shock, this resulted in many service personnel trying to hide symptoms for fear of being branded cowards or unfit for duty. Consequently, many sufferers of what would become Gulf War Syndrome went undiagnosed for far longer than they should have. By 1995, US authorities inundated with requests and complaints by veterans and their families conducted a survey to determine whether Gulf War veterans really were experiencing a much higher case of illness than other service personnel. According to the US Department of Veteran Affairs, the survey involved 15,000 Gulf War veterans and 15,000 service personnel deployed elsewhere around the world at the time of the conflict. The result was shocking. Around half of the Gulf War veterans complained of illness related to military service during 1990 and 1991, compared to just 19% in the control group. 
This was by no means restricted to the US armed forces either. Across the pond in the United Kingdom, on November 7th of the same year the US were conducting this very survey, the British Commons Defence Committee published its first report on Gulf War Syndrome, which was now becoming the blanket term for illness related to Gulf War service. However, in both the UK and the US, the results of the research presented both answers and problems. Yes, it was generally agreed that service personnel were more likely to suffer ill health if they had participated in Desert Storm, but the problem was that the symptoms and illnesses they experienced were often wide-ranging and with no apparent common factor. Thus, the conclusion was that there was no specific disease that could be categorized as Gulf War Syndrome. Yet, it was all but impossible to ignore that something had or was continuing to happen to thousands of veterans. The most common symptoms experienced by veterans include chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, a very nasty long-term condition that causes pain all over the body and comes with a host of other symptoms too, gastrointestinal problems, and respiratory and skin conditions. Furthermore, there were other less prevalent but still statistically high cases of other illnesses amongst veterans, and this led to the medical community attempting to move away from the term Gulf War Syndrome towards the close of the 90s. They felt that this one term confused the picture somewhat, as it implied one single cause for the increase in illness amongst veterans, when it was now being suspected that there were several causes. Instead, terms like Gulf War Illness, Veterans Multi-Symptom Illness, or simply Undiagnosed Illnesses were used. But Gulf War Syndrome remained in the public consciousness well into the new millennium. For simplicity's sake, we will continue to refer to the veterans' medical conditions and their possibly equally varied causes as Gulf War Syndrome. In this context, we use the term to define illnesses arising from service in the Gulf in 1990 and 1991. Whether there was just one or several causes, many wanted answers as to why so many veterans experienced ill health related to their experience in the Gulf. It seemed to become especially urgent by 2003, as American and British troops were poised to return to the Gulf under Operation Iraqi Freedom. There we have the mysterious illnesses, but just what could the causes be? Almost from the moment that a correlation between Gulf War service and increased illness was made, blame began to be pointed squarely at a controversial new weapon system deployed by American and British armored forces. One of the byproducts of nuclear power is depleted uranium, and in the 1970s, armies around the world began to realize that this could actually be repurposed for use in manufacturing anti-tank weapons. Depleted uranium has significantly higher density than steel, which was one of the most commonly used materials for constructing armor, such as that on Iraqi tanks. Unlike conventional shells, upon impacting the target, the DU tip remains sharp, even as the outer layer is eroded away, and the energy from the impact also produces intense heat, igniting it as it enters the tank. 
Finally, they also possess much higher kinetic force during flight to the target, and all of these factors combine to make the DU rounds extraordinarily lethal. Upon impacting the Iraqi tanks, the DU rounds would punch through the armor with little effort and wreak havoc on the interior, killing the crew and igniting its ammunition. It was not uncommon for the entire turrets of Iraqi tanks to fly off their hulls as their own ammunition detonated all at once. Victorious coalition troops would then examine the wrecks and even take a few snapshots of themselves standing where the turrets used to be, all of this without any protective gear on at all. And it is this exposure to the aftermath of such weapons that has been brought into criticism and been blamed for instances of Gulf War Syndrome. The theory had always been that the impact of these weapons released radioactive particles that the troops then inhaled into their bodies. Professor Yagasaki Katsuma of the University of Ryukyu in Japan, and a long outspoken opponent of nuclear-armed and nuclear-based weapons, wrote in an August 2000 paper the following. The term depleted seems to give an impression that the DU is uranium that does not contain radioactivity anymore which is not the case. DU ammunition can cause serious radioactive contamination and is no less atrocious than nuclear weapons. Nuclear power plants are really dangerous facilities put in practical use on stipulation that they can completely seal in radiation, while radioactive weapons commit an impermissible crime, scattering radioactive materials in the environment. The American and British militaries both insisted that the use of depleted uranium in both weapons and armor conformed to international laws and safety procedures, yet doubts still persisted. Over 300,000 more DU tank rounds were fired in 2003, mostly by American forces against the Iraqi army, but as the decade wore on, calls for the international banning of DU weapons grew louder based on environmental and health concerns. Those calls were increased by research, which suggested that soldiers who have significantly high levels of exposure to DU weapons were at a much higher risk of producing children with birth defects or blood diseases like leukemia. However, nations who continue to advocate the use of DU weapons continue to argue that the research, which was largely laboratory-based, does not translate into the real world. As recently as 2021, research conducted by the University of Portsmouth in the UK has, in their words, conclusively proven that DU shells did not play a part in Gulf War veterans' health conditions. Professor Randall Parrish said to the BBC in February of 2021, being able to debunk the alleged connection between this illness and this radioactive substance allows the medical community to focus more clearly on what the likely causes actually are. Yet, despite research such as this, the wider public confidence in DU weapons continues to be low. It is certainly one of the primary potential causes of the terrible Gulf War Syndrome, but it is not the only theory. Iraq's Biological and Chemical Weapon Caches The Iraqi army had swelled massively during the 1980s in order to combat Iran, becoming the fourth largest in the world with well over one million troops. 
Yet, even more frightening to the Coalition commanders than its size and hardware was its arsenal of biological and chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein had repeatedly used them against Iranian troops and Kurdish resistance fighters in the north of Iraq, fighting for independence. It was assumed, therefore, he would have almost no hesitation in using such weapons against a predominantly Western military force, threatening his Kuwaiti conquest. Nullifying the threat from these weapons was, therefore, a high priority. Coalition commanders undertook a three-pronged approach to achieve that end. The first tactic was to deny Saddam the ability to deploy the weapons by either destroying aircraft or missiles in airstrikes, or failing that, preventing them from reaching their targets such as the staging areas in Saudi Arabia, where huge members of coalition troops were grouped together. The second approach was to destroy Saddam's stockpiles of biological and chemical weapons, as well as his ability to manufacture replacements. Finally, as a last resort should the first two approaches fail, the coalition forces would be vaccinated against as many of the weaponized diseases as possible. In the first instance, coalition forces were supremely successful, with Iraq finding itself on the defensive for the entirety of Desert Storm, bar a few isolated incidents early on. However, it is the other two approaches that have generated the greatest criticism from campaigners and researchers looking into the causes of Gulf War Syndrome. Approximately 350 kilometers southeast of the Iraqi capital Baghdad sits the Kamisia Ammunition Storage Facility, a vast complex measuring some 25 square kilometers in size. On March 4th, 1991, Less than 24 hours after Iraq had accepted the terms of a UN-brokered peace agreement, and less than a week before half a million American troops would be sent home, US combat engineers and explosive ordnance disposal teams detonated large numbers of explosives, destroying many of the site's buildings. The catastrophic destruction was fueled by the detonation of large numbers of munitions being stored there, and the immense explosion that followed produced an ominous black mushroom cloud that rose into the Iraqi sky and could be seen for miles around. At the time of the demolition, US commanders believed that only conventional weapons were stored there. However, in subsequent years, evidence began to emerge that some of Saddam's chemical weapons stockpiles may have been there also. As a result, when the demolition was carried out, these deadly chemical weapons were released into the sky within the plume and carried across the Persian Gulf, a region still swamped with an international military force who were now rejoicing that the war was over. As it happened, the coalition had established a network of nuclear, biological, and chemical monitoring posts in anticipation of Saddam using such weapons, allowing commanders to know what and where was affected. Of course, such an attack never came, but in the wake of the destruction of Kamisia, some of these monitoring posts did detect increased traces of nerve agents in the air. In 1996, the United States authorities finally admitted that they had become aware that such weapons were at Kamisia in March of 1991. For Gulf War Syndrome sufferers, the investigation into the impact of what has been labeled now as the Plume of Death has been a frustrating one. Several computer models have been constructed by both the US Department of Defense and the CIA, attempting to trace the path of the plume 
However, they've all proved wildly inconsistent, with estimated troop exposure numbers subsequently varying wildly. This inconsistency is only worsened by the fact that Kamisia was not the only Iraqi facility destroyed by coalition forces that stored chemical weapons. There were others too, although none so near to coalition forces. In 2017, Dr. Linda Chow of the San Francisco Veterans Affairs Medical Center released the findings of a new study conducted on veterans who were considered at risk of exposure from the Kamisia plume. She found that on brain magnetic resonance imaging scans, the hippocampus was significantly smaller in veterans with predicted exposure compared with those who were not exposed. The difference remains significant even after accounting for a wide range of other factors that could also have affected the results. Further testing of the exposed veterans found they had lower scores on tests concerning verbal learning and memory. With coalition commanders so sure that Saddam would resort to biological weapons, it seemed wise that they take every step conceivable to protect their servicemen and women. But it was not only weaponized diseases that posed a threat. Diseases common to the operational theater are always a threat to soldiers coming in from overseas to fight, who would have little or no natural immunity to them. US service personnel deployed to the Gulf received inoculations against yellow fever, typhoid, cholera, hepatitis B, meningitis, whooping cough, polio, and tetanus. This was standard practice for any US citizen who planned on traveling to the region, and the vaccinations were conducted with confidence. However, it was some of the more exotic inoculations intended to protect against Saddam's biological weapons that have come under intense criticism from veterans and campaign groups in the years since. According to the Department of Veteran Affairs, 150,000 troops received inoculations to protect against anthrax, while a further 8,000 received the botulinum toxoid vaccine that had been used to protect workers in the US who may be exposed to certain chemicals and illnesses in an industrial setting. Thousands of troops were also issued with pyrostigmine bromide tablets, but these had not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the US military receiving a waiver in the interests of national security. Soldiers who refused to take these medications were reportedly threatened with severe punishment. Responding to concerns over a link between vaccinations and cases of Gulf War Syndrome, the Health and Medicine Division of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine concluded in their 2000 investigation that there was inadequate or insufficient evidence to determine whether an association does or does not exist between multiple vaccinations and long-term adverse health problems. Since that time, this has been the official position of American and British authorities. What has angered a great many veterans with deteriorating medical conditions is that a lot of the paperwork concerning which soldier received what appears to have gone missing on both sides of the Atlantic. In the UK, the official government stance is that there was some negligence on their part concerning the records, while in the United States, some more insidious accusations have been made. 
During a TED talk in 2018, Dr. Jennifer Curlius stated that she had received testimony from US Navy medics who were ordered to destroy such records without an explanation as to why. In 2003, former British soldier Alex Izzett won a case concerning his pension when he successfully argued at a tribunal that his condition of osteoporosis, which left him with weakened bones and muscle tissue, was the result of a cocktail of inoculations he received prior to deploying to the Gulf in 1991. What makes this case so intriguing is that ultimately, Mr. Izzet did not deploy as planned with the Royal Engineers, and yet he continued to suffer with conditions attributed to Gulf War Syndrome. When the Ministry of Defense said they would not contest the ruling, campaigners felt at last that they had formal acknowledgement from the British government that Gulf War Syndrome existed and was the result of vaccines. However, it was not to be. The MOD replied that they still disagreed with the ruling, and in answer as to why they were not pursuing an appeal, they said simply the decision was made due to legal obstacles, and that their position was still firmly that there was no link between the vaccination program and Gulf War Syndrome. Mr. Izzet would continue campaigning for recognition of Gulf War Syndrome, even going on a 40-day hunger strike in 2004 to force an inquiry into Gulf War cases. Vaccines on the whole have been proven many times over to be extremely safe. However, in this one case, it is a possibility worthy of consideration that anxious war planners may have rushed through drugs and medicine to their troops that may have had adverse effects long-term. According to the US National Gulf War Research Center, 250,000 veterans of the conflict out of 700,000 deployed have some form of ill health which they believe to have stemmed from their deployment. Given such monumental numbers, authorities were eventually forced to acknowledge this as fact. The US did so in 2004, followed by the United Kingdom in 2007. As we have tried to convey in this episode, the term Gulf War Syndrome is not a diagnosis for one specific condition, but instead a blanket term for illnesses acquired as a result of Gulf War service, and this is very much the stance both countries have taken. However, the causes of these illnesses continue to be debated, and in recent years there appears to be a growing trend of blaming Iraq for the problems. As well as the aforementioned storing of stockpiles of chemical weapons, another often cited cause, particularly for those with respiratory problems, is the Iraqi army's setting fire of the Kuwaiti oil fields as they retreated. With the war nearly lost, the Iraqi army decided to do as much damage to Kuwait as possible before leaving, out of nothing more than petty spite. Over 600 oil fields, as well as hundreds of pools and tanks of crude oil were ignited, creating an immense, menacing black cloud over the tiny Persian Gulf state that in some places turned day into night. The fires burned for months after the end of the fighting, with the final fire not being put out until November 1991. The resulting uneven heating of the land and sea surfaces created local atmospheric inversions, particularly during the summer months, that trapped smoke in the lower atmosphere 
and occasionally caused the plumes to blanket the Kuwaiti land surface, leaving people inhaling poisonous gases. Soldiers and civilians alike inhaled carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, and acidic aerosols, among many other things. Many veterans attribute their ill health to being forced to inhale the polluted air from these oil fires. Despite the US and UK's official acknowledgement of Gulf War Syndrome, veterans looking for compensation or financial support to combat their illnesses have often had what must feel like an impossible task ahead of them. According to the Department of Veteran Affairs Statistics, in 2014, a shocking 80% of cases brought forward by veterans were unsuccessful, despite the research that has repeatedly shown that veterans are statistically more likely to develop health problems than those not deployed to the Gulf. The 1991 Gulf War has been heralded as one of the most influential conflicts in recent history, and for good reason for it would shape geopolitical politics in the region for the next 30 years. Given the sheer scale of events in that time frame, it's easy to forget the personal stories of those who fought there, many of whom still suffer every day, bearing the cost of service to their countries. And there you have the story of Gulf War Syndrome. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.